I do think animals are necessary in a healthy and you know healthy and thriving agriculture and food system because like anything if you just take something out of an ecosystem there's going to be a huge imbalance and you know regenerative agriculture is something that so many people and you know a lot of big corporations like General Mills and Danan are all talking about now. Hello and welcome back to My Signature Dish, episode 13. My name's Ollie Horn. It's a pleasure to have you here. This is the podcast where I speak to the most talented home cooks that I can find. Find out what food means to them and get them to reveal all about their signature dish. In this episode, I speak to Shen Ming Li. I spoke to her in Malaysia just before she headed back to the US to complete her undergraduate degree in hospitality management. But despite not having yet finished her studies, she's already a hugely accomplished individual. So interested was she in food justice, the role that we play in our food system, that she decided to research and write a book. And most of our discussion is about this book. It's called Hungry for Disruption, How Tech Innovations Will Nourish 10 Billion by 2050. And she is teeming with knowledge about the digitization and automation of the farm. Uh, She taught me words such as hydroponic, aquaponic, and aeroponic, which are different types of farming. Uh, Of course, we talk about lab-grown meat. Uh, We talk about the supply chain digitization and how blockchain will one day reduce food waste. Just so much really high-level, interesting stuff that she explains in such an accessible way. But not only do we talk about the future of food, we also talk about what she's baking now. And she's a huge fan of baking. She sold cupcakes and gingerbread men uh, while she was uh, a student in order to fund her studies. And she reveals how she makes the most delicious sounding apple galette, uh, using lots and lots of butter that she hopes one day will be made redundant and turned into, I don't know, some kind of growing on trees or lab grown or whatever it is butter. So the conversation starts with me asking her about her studies, what she's doing at the Cornell School of Hotel Administration, and what she plans to do with her degree. Enjoy. It's a business school, but just applied to the hospitality industry, even though a lot of people don't directly go into hotel operations or restaurant operations. Um, I went there actually wanting to start a health food chain and go into F&B. Um, but quickly my interest changed as I got influenced by a lot of things at Cornell, being a huge food and ag school, being involved in club work, as well as um, taking different classes in food science or food justice. And yeah, I think my perspective of food really changed while I was at Cornell and just the role that we all play in our food system really opened up for me there. So in the time that you've spent at university, what's been the, the major shift in the way that you've thought about food? I think just a shift from, okay, food to me is just about hospitality and cooking because that was really my first kind of love and passion with food um, to, okay, food is so much more than that. Food is an entire ecosystem and system that has so many different stakeholders that play all play an integral role in the health and the future of it. And so how can I learn about all the interrelated issues and complex issues between all these different stakeholders um, and what's ahead for us in the food system. Because I was like a hospitality person, seeing that most people at the end of the food chain don't talk to the people at the bottom of the food chain. And I think that's so integral. And you see a lot of chefs, like once they reach the peak of their careers or even on the way there, they start looking to the farm and at the roots of their produce and how it's grown. So 
yeah, I think it's just like me at the end of the food chain, kind of looking back and thinking there's so much more in this food system than just me at the end cooking. And what is a typical hospitality school curriculum? What do you mainly learn? Ooh, so you take a lot of hotel operations and restaurant operations related classes, but also all the really standard business classes like accounting and business law and things like that. But I think the really hallmark class at the hotel school is this class called restaurant management. So we have a restaurant in our lecture hall building um, in Statler Hall that's called establishment and it's run entirely by students um, in the program and you take it about your third or fourth year Um, and basically to pass the class you have to run the restaurant on both the back house and the front house at some point along with other people of course but you have your own kind of restaurant night throughout the course where you plan the entire menu you do the R&D you have to manage the entire staff on the back um back end and the front end and so back of house and front of house so that's really kind of the hallmark class where you have graduated from the hotel school if you've taken this restaurant management class right and how hard is it to run a restaurant it's tough (laughs) it's not easy because you have to training staff is a huge um I wouldn't say pain point but you need to put a lot of effort if you really care about the food that you're putting out I'm such a perfectionist that on my night, I really just um, was really picky about what I wanted. And so if you don't have well-trained staff, which at the time was really hard because we're all students. And so we're all still kind of learning about food and cooking and stuff like that. There are people in the kitchen that haven't even really cooked before in their life. Right. So how do you take someone in and train them? Um, that's one thing pricing your items obviously is another thing where you do the whole analysis like cost analysis and things like that I, I read an interesting economics book about uh, why certain coffees cost a certain, a certain way and, I, and it was until I read this book I didn't realize that of course a cappuccino costs more not necessarily because milk costs more than coffee but because someone's got to froth that milk and that's the thing that, that takes time and that's the thing that, that actually ultimately costs money right yeah, I mean, like a, a normal black coffee in the U.S. is probably 2 to $3, but then if you get a latte, it goes up to 5 to $6, right? And so they always say the latte is like this way of cafes making a super premium and charging such a big arb charge um, for just frothing milk. <laughs> yeah. But I, I play into that culture too. Like I <laughs> pay, sometimes pay 5 to $6 almost every day <laughs> oh, wow. for my coffee because, yeah, there's this place in Ithaca that does really good ones. But they infuse it with like turmeric, orange, sometimes like really cool flavors. And, it's like a cocktail. Yeah. And they do like this thing called the fireside mocha, which is um, like cardamom, cinnamon, spice mix with a mocha, a traditional mocha. And it's amazing during the winter. How much they how much they, they sell oh, that for? Oh, it goes up to... At least six dollars. <laughs> and if you substitute oat milk, it goes higher. <laughs> Which you do. Yes, <laughs> I'm guilty of that. <laughs> uh, so you um you you went into into hospitality school thinking about kind of the end product, right? The food as it looks on the plate, and then you went on this journey where you started to think, well, this food must have come from somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and one way in which you you learnt about the the ecosystem was to write a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is not not um, not what most students typically do. Normally they read them. Um, <laughs> so what made you decide to do that? I think it was just process of my perspective changing and me becoming just deeply curious about the future of our food system. Because I think I 
when I was more in the hospitality world, for me, it was all about the health food world and like all the trends to do with, you know, clean eating and farm to table and things like that. And so you can't really look at the nutrition of your food without looking at agriculture and how the food system works because it all stems from that. And so I was looking back, being influenced by these classes I was taking. Like I remember this food justice class I took my first year, which really opened up my eyes because I was my final paper was on farm subsidies in the U.S. And if you know anything about farm subsidies in the U.S., it's incredibly distorted. Okay, and well, I don't know anything about farm subsidies in the U.S. Okay. <laughs> so maybe you can tell me yeah. what it, what, why it's so distorted. Oh, gosh. So the U.S. spends billions every year on their farm subsidies, right? Like up to 20 over a billion every year, depending on what year you look at. Um, obviously, with the Trump administration, it's changing, but in historical years. And at least 80 to 90 percent of that goes to five major crops corn um, cotton soybean wheat and rice they are the main ones though aren't they they are the main ones they're commodities for a reason but a lot of that isn't actually going into feeding people (laughs) it's going into feeding livestock which is then fed to people right and so if you just think about the inefficiency about the conversion ratios and how much of grain is being used to you know feed animals and and produce marginally smaller amounts and um, quantities of meat compared to how much grain we have it's just not a very efficient model and 80 90 percent of subsidies goes to those five major crops but then if you look at things like fruits and vegetables and poultry and livestock these are things that i think are really important for our nutrition obviously and building a thriving and nutritious food system and so if we're not subsidizing these other crops as well and only isolating these five crops we're essentially robbing our food system of a lot of nutritious foods that need to be in our diet and why aren't the subsidies more widely spread it's a lot of bureaucracy and it's very political as well because there are these huge states like iowa which you know primarily run on corn um, and soy and ethanol and so when you have 80 to 90 percent of farm subsidies going to these three major crops and not to things like fruits and vegetables and you know poultry livestock you have a system that's just inherently rigged against nutrition and that's one of the biggest problems of the food system in general it prioritizes calories and not nutrition that's nothing new I'm saying like a lot of people have already been saying it but no one's there's no regulation and policies that are actually acting um, rightly on it. And so I think the key question going forward for the food system is like, how do we increase food? We know we need to increase food production by whatever, 2050 and 30 years. Um, But how do we increase it both quantitatively and qualitatively while also meeting our kind of climate um, and economic goals? And how do we not just feed people calorically, but actually feed people nutritionally well? And that's why the title is about how do we nourish 10 billion instead of how do we just feed 10 billion? Right. And it is what you're saying then that the the free a free market system uh, can't work and also a, a kind of a government interventionist system isn't working because we're putting our priorities in the wrong place. Yeah, that's essentially it. And... It's just also corporates and huge conglomerates that control a lot of the inputs in our food system. And so I think shifting some of the power away from these conglomerates that cannot be make, can't be making the right decisions for the food system is a, something that needs to happen. I think we're slowly seeing that with a lot of startups and new innovative um, companies being 
being um, put out. And it's the point with this industry that consumers can't vote with their wallet. That mm-hmm. is to say that by the time the food's already in the supermarkets or mm-hmm. on our plate, it's kind of already too late. The, the main decisions have already been, been made for us. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, it's the same thing with plastic waste as well. It's a, lo- a lot of issues are systemic in the sense that they occur between chains and segments of the food chain that we don't have control over. But there's also an opportunity there, right? Because relying on consumers completely, if you look at the plastic epidemic for an instance, you can't completely um, just rely on every single consumer to make a difference because their, their difference is marginal in comparison to what you can make from a systems thinking point of view. And so how can we basically create changes in the system that can deflect some of that burden away from consumers so that implicit behavioral changes can happen? Is what you're saying in the book that we need new innovations in order to change these systems? Or are, are these innovations already there, but they're just not being used? I think a bit of both. A lot of technology already exists. It's just convincing people that this is the direction that we need to go. Like technology is not the entire solution. It's part of the solution, right? Like how can we integrate it into our existing systems? Because how we've been producing food for the past century has not been working for our food system, right? What I do know is that even though, you know, I believe in this relationship between man and nature that is cultivated through food and I completely respect tradition and you know fa- traditional farmer values of respecting the land um, and so disruption might seem a bit apprehensive for them but the way like I said the way that we've been producing food is just not sustainable and so um, how can we going forward how can we create a better food system and I just know that the way we've been doing it is not right and this is the reason why we need to integrate um, in new innovations. Okay, so let, let's talk about some concrete examples that you talk mm-hmm. about in your book. What are the what are the exciting breakthroughs that we're we're on the cusp of implementing? The book is um, divided into four parts. So the first part is about digitizing the farm. Um, the farm is agriculture is just one of the few industries that is so under digitized. If you look compared to other industries, I know basically no one's got Instagram. No. <laughs> Have you met a farmer on Instagram or follow any farmers on Instagram? Nope. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, not just, for, I mean, away from social media, it's really about how do we digitize the farm and basically allow what a farmer has always observed on their farm to be able to be seen digitally and be able to collect that data so that they can actually analyze the operations of their farm and make it much more efficient, right? And it's such a shame because there are just millions and millions of people around the world who got obsessed with Farmville. If only we could have pulled, <laughs> pulled all of that collective knowledge into actual farms. No, I totally agree. <laughs> but, but is that basically what you're talking about? The idea that, that kind of a farm is, is, is a series of data points and there needs to be a way of putting that all in one place such that a farmer can make better decisions. Yeah, I mean, with the rise of the Internet of Things and the advancement of you know IoT in the space... Um, we have very sophisticated sensors that are much more affordable now that is av- can be available to a farmer. But it's just about building software and systems that work and can be integrated into their existing operations, right? The way that farmers usually do things is very much by visual observation. They go out to their farm. They have these things called farm scouts that go and figure out, okay, what are the conditions of my farm every day so that I can actually track these. And they use extremely traditional ways of you know collecting this data. And it's not very continuous data either. It's very infrequent and so if you have sensors you know in your farm that can actually and you have drones that are surveying or robots that can actually you know see um, use imaging to figure out okay what are the conditions of my plants 
every almost every hour of the day um then you can make much better decisions over time. This seems really obvious, but it hasn't happened. And is that no. a financing problem? Is this just like a, a capital allocation problem or is this a culture problem? I think it's the culture problem. Um, the average age of farmers is above the 60s. <laughs> and so they're very risk averse. Yeah. Right. So how do we convince them? And also them? That they'll be dead by the time their capital investment pays off. Right. Exactly. And so part of... Um, the changes in food system is also bringing younger people into the system who are much more tech savvy, who are much more open to change and making deep institutional change. Um, and yeah, and can also communicating with old farmers and saying, okay, this works. How can we help you basically maximize your yield and minimize your inputs? Because that's the primary goal of all farmers. Um, and I, I do think from talking to farmers, they are open to it. It's just that they are not often completely convinced that they can risk a crop cycle and a season of crops in order to do that, right? Because farmer incomes are at its all-time low now, especially in the U.S. Farmers, in fact, don't even make money. They always have alternative sources of income. And so it's... What, it's what are really, these sources normally? What, like tourism, that kind of thing? Yeah, agro-tourism or... They try selling products, yeah. um, like artisan products directly to consumers. You see a lot of people doing farm visits and that sort of thing. So yeah. that's all part of the agro-tourism kind of, um, yeah, phase and trend. So so we, we've talked about modifying or rather improving an existing way of farming. Mm -hmm. But you also talk about new ways of farming. Yeah. Completely shifting the paradigm. So that's the second part of the book. The first part is digitizing and also automating the farm. So... I talk about the role of ag drones, um, which interestingly enough, there's a lot being done in precision pollination. So using drones as pollinators because bees are dying. <laughs> and so, and as well as agrobotics and robots um, that are acting as basically autonomous weeders and seeders and chemical sprayers, right? Because these are, these are jobs that are very menial and repetitive for farmers and inherently low wage and low value anyway. So I talk about how that frees up the farmer to pursue higher value opportunities. So changing our attitudes towards automation and digitization, because I think that's really the fear with all this digitization and automation that's happening, that it's going to drive people's jobs away, but I think it will evolve people's jobs. Um, and then the second part is going off to what you just said, which is novel farming systems, so new ways of farming. So looking at indoor farm technology, hydroponics, aquaponics, and vertical farms, and how that's basically shifting farming as we know it, where it's not no longer limited by geography um, and the climate. So, you know, how we can grow food much nearer to where we consume it. And that has a lot of benefits in terms of reducing food mass and maximizing and optimizing the nutrition and freshness of our food. And is this any food that we can grow or, or produce near to where we live? Yeah, I mean, currently it's very much limited to higher value crops. So you see a lot of um, farms doing, you know, very gourmet herbs and maybe strawberries, tomatoes. Um, a lot of leafy greens, which can be easily grown hydroponically and or aquaponically or aeroponically, whichever you want to choose. Um, I don't know what those three things are. Okay. <laughs> so hydroponic is basically just growing soilless in water in an indoor system, in a climate controlled system. Aquaponic involves aquaculture, which is the farming of fish, where you use the waste of the fish to 
provide nutrients to plants. So within the same system, fish poo is is like <laughs> acting as fertilizer for crops. Yeah, it's a circular system. Fantastic. It's a circle. It's a closed loop system. And then um, aeroponics is just the idea of you expose the roots in the air and you just spray the roots with water and nu- nutrients when it needs it oh, to try to minimize the inputs basically for a crop. But it all uses sensing and IoT as well. So it's very climate controlled. You can, So I actually recently bought a micro aquaponic system. Um, I haven't gotten it yet, but when I do get it, I basically can feed my fish and track the growth of my plants with my phone. Because it's all set, there's sensors everywhere that can sense, okay, is my fish hungry? Is there enough feed and, yeah, is That's there enough cool. nutrients in my water right now? And do I need to feed the fish more so that it poos more so that it provides more nutrients to my plants? So. And how does it know? What, what, what are the sensors? They're just sensors, um, like... What's it sensing? It's sensing the amount of nutrients in the water. Right. Um, the heat, um, the temperature... Um, the amount of light intensity that the plant requires throughout the day um, in dif- different stages of photosynthesis. Um, yeah, because there's also an LED bed above that provides artificial lighting. Right. So, yeah, it's sensing all these things that a plant needs. <laughs> this ecosystem doesn't sound in its totality carbon neutral. Yes, <laughs> there, that is one on. downside that is actually discussed. And one of the reasons why it's not very economically and environmentally viable yeah. yet. You need an iPhone, for goodness sake. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in a huge commercial setting, obviously, it's not with an iPhone, but with, you know, s- machines and yeah. systems. But there are ways to. So one of the downsides is just looking at purely lighting. Only about 1% of artificial lighting in indoor farms is actually absorbed by the plant. And so 99% is lost as heat and other sources of energy. Even with LEDs? Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's actually a huge problem that the indoor farm tech industry is trying to solve. And there's two ways. You either engineer plants to absorb different um, spectrums of light you know, well and differently or produce better and more advanced lighting technology that Interesting. can adapt to a plant's natural photosynthesis cycles. And so there's a lot happening in indoor farm tech technology in terms of lighting technology, as well as gene editing crops to be optimal for indoor farms. Um, But going back to your point about can we grow everything in indoor farms? The answer is actually no. So a lot of the commodity and um, main major five crops that I talked about just now, like wheat and soy and corn, can't actually be grown indoors yet. Um, It's just much harder to grow them indoors in terms of controlling the conditions because they need very different conditions than what indoor farms are optimized for, basically, in short. And so I don't think we'll ever... And also economics is another issue. It's not economically viable to grow extremely low-value crops in such an expensive, currently expensive facility Mm. that requires so much technology and energy. Um, But I do... I do still have hope that in areas that need it, for instance, very dense cities like Singapore, Hong Kong, a lot of work is being done in this space because the self-sufficiency is a huge kind of trend in the food space where a lot of cities are seeing the need to reduce their import bill and produce more of their own food. And so vertical farms are a solution for them. Um, and there are ways of diverting all that wasted energy and you know heating, heating your providing energy for your um, building of the vertical farm. And what about meat? Oh, okay. That's actually the third part of the book. So the third part of the book is re-engineering our food, which one of the chapters is on alternative meats, both plant-based and cell-based. 
as well as um, two chapters on CRISPR and genetically modified organisms, which is everyone's favorite, most controversial topic. But on the topic of meat, that's actually one of the first topics that really got me into this space. Um, so I've been following the impossibles, the beyond meats. For do you eat meat yourself? I do, but only when I'm in Asia. Right. Okay. <laughs> it's very complicated. I've struggled with this my whole life. Um, when I'm back in the US, I am primarily plant-based. The only um, animal products that I would occasionally have is bone broth. Yeah. And I think that's okay because a lot of people don't use the bones and I see it as, you know, not wasting the bones. So I use it to make broth. But it's much easier to be plant-based in the US than in Asia oh, because totally there's so that. many alternatives in the US and the Western world. Um, here it's more about tradition and cultural values. So, you know. Well, I think that's also p true for the US, just probably not where you live. Like, yeah. I, I think of Texas, for example, where mm -hmm. if they lost their ability to barbecue. Oh, God. They, they've, got no, they've got nothing left other than <laughs> guns and racism. They would barbecue a tofurkey turkey. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, but but certainly on the two coasts of America, I can, mm, yeah, yeah it's, I agree. It's super easy, and actually, yeah. more than being easy, it's like it's culturally cool, right? You're yeah. like, you'll, you'll never get someone say, "Oh, go on," um, and you know, in in some instances, people are people who are who do have a plant based diet are more uh, feel more enabled to judge people mm. uh, who don't. Whereas you're right, in Asia, it's the exact opposite. You're you're sometimes ridiculed for going out. Oh, oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons. I mean, the main reason is really that my grandma makes the best roast pork in the world. Oh, really? <laughs> like siu yolk. She makes it two styles, like Chinese style, which is like siu yolk, yeah. but also the English style, which is she just slices it and makes this homemade applesauce with it. Oh, and it has the best crackling I've ever had. And she's used this... Best crackling you've ever had so far. Uh, okay. Uh, I, did, <laughs> I did pretty mean crackling. Okay. In our in our in our video series, um, I did a um, a porchetta. Oh uh, yes, was, I saw. Oh, did you? And it was let me tell you, delicious. It was the crackling good though. That's yeah. the, the the key. Yeah. Oh, there's, no, there's nothing worse than a bad crackling. Mm -hmm. My um my mum did the keto diet and <laughs> for about a week. She um lived mainly off crackling and pork scratchings oh wow that's uh, a great diet if i could <laughs> do that i would do it <laughs> yeah so uh yeah so, so i mean certainly i, I you're right there, i don't think there's a big uh, cultural impetus to go plant-based in in asia yeah yet. I, mean, it's, I think it's partly cultural it's partly economics it's partly supply you know, i think there's, there's loads of reasons for it plus i think i'm often reminded for example when i go back to um say where my grandparents in the uk live which is a slightly poorer part of the uk than mm. say london or, or, or cosmopolitan bristol that while i i can mistakenly give myself the impression that there's a tidal wave of of people moving uh, to a plant-based to a plant-based diet mm -hmm. um when actually it's it is still a very, very significant minority of the population, mm -hmm. even in in kind of cosmopolitan places. Oh um, yeah, but mm -hmm. but there's no doubt once uh, lab grown meat or mm -hmm. however else you grow meat on a tree, um, <laughs> on a tree, uh, or on on your app made of fish poo. <laughs> there's, I have no doubt that, that the transition will be easy because, like, so you mentioned the Impossible Burger, for example. Right. I was completely underwhelmed by it. 
And, and what I find, I, I met some people, I probably shouldn't say this, but I met some people from the Impossible Burger who mm. work for them. And they all eat meat themselves. <laughs> they, they, they just don't have skin in the game. Yeah. Um, if, it, if they do have skin, it's like, it's pig skin and they've roasted it. <laughs> it's great though. Crackling yeah. is great. But I mean, what I will say, I'm not a judgy plant-based eater if that makes sense i don't judge other people that still eat meat because you know i do sometimes when i'm back for me it's really what kind of meat are you eating and i know i have the privilege of saying that because i've lived somewhere like in ithaca new york where i can go to the farmer's market and buy grass-fed beef or grass-fed meat and i can afford it you know i have the privilege of doing that but i mean a lot of the harmful implications of meat are in meat that is produced from an industrial system not a more kind of small to medium farm system right? yeah but, but there's a bit of a suck and blow here isn't there because on the one hand you want to have a uh, you want to be buying beef that's been uh free to roam mm-hmm. around and eat whatever it wants but from an environmental point of view it's much better that we put all these cows in one in one one small cage there is there's also you know there, there is a tension isn't there um mm. i think on balance i'd, I'd probably prefer uh, well, not probably. I'm definitely on the side of better animal welfare than yeah. uh, than thinking about the the environment. But that is another problem, isn't it? Right? That the, the, it isn't even possible, really, to to buy meat truly ethical. So, for example, I the, my my uh, mum lives in the in the countryside in in mm. Gloucestershire in the UK, and about five minute walk from the house is a pig farmer, and I get on really well with him, and uh, he couldn't treat his animals better. Uh, until the day that he sends them to Stone House to mm. get uh, to, to the slaughterhouse, uh, on that day he's arguably quite mean to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but you know, but that said, right, what what he's doing is probably like probably from an environmental point of view could be like radically improved if he took less care of animal welfare, which he's not prepared to do. Mm-hmm. So it did occur to me that you know that there is no right answer to this, is there? Well, I've actually really evolved my position on this because I do think animals are necessary in a healthy and you know healthy and thriving agriculture and food system because like anything if you just take something out of an ecosystem there's going to be a huge imbalance and you know regenerative agriculture is something that so many people and you know a lot of big corporations like General Mills and Danan are all talking about now which is just the idea of let's restore um, our soil and our land because we're degrading it to the point of no return and you need animals in a healthy farm um, cycle, right? And a healthy like carbon, like health for carbon and nitrogen cycles to work on a farm because, you know, they, they poo and then the nutrients goes back into the soil and that helps restore the um, carbon cycle that the natural carbon cycle that occurs in soils. And so I think it's, it's a very hard topic to talk about because it really depends what kind of um, animal agriculture you're talking about. Because if you're looking at industrial animal agriculture, that's where a lot of the harmful implications are. Harmful in terms of animal welfare? And environmental, in terms of um, the amount of methane that they're producing and how much they're not actually being put on pasture and actually benefiting our soils. Because again, the food system is all an ecosystem and a system. And so looking at issues in isolation is just really hard because there are other systems, right? If you look at... um, the benefits of animals on pasture there are a lot of benefits because it helps restore our land our soils but then if you look at it for purely a meat um, consumption of meat point of view it has to be economics just 
demands that it be you know in a farm i mean in a closed enclosure where they're all packed together um on a factory farm and so from that point of view it's not benefiting the land and it's just producing a lot of unnecessary not unnecessary but a lot of methane that isn't being providing that isn't providing value to our land basically and let's talk about the last chapter of your book yeah so the last chapter is about streamlining our food supply chain so looking at how we can digitize food waste in our supply chain and basically track also track the authenticity at every stage so that we can basically um, go back to the sources of our food really easily even though we're at the end of it so blockchain is one of the things that is playing a role in that but I think food waste tech is really interesting because I talk about things like bio-based coatings that are being able to extend the shelf life of our produce as well. And the the, the blockchain element is we'll find some way of tokenizing mm. like an individual what? An individual bean? Or an yeah. Indi- so Walmart did that with a package of uh, mangoes. Right. Um, and they've already done that and... Um, Louis Dreyfus, which is a commodity trader, conducted the first blockchain-based um, commodity trade right. of soybeans. And, and is the the kind of commercial implication of this that, say, you discover um, that some mangoes are being contaminated, mm. right? That you don't have to get rid of every mango you've ever bought. You can isolate it down to, oh, it'll be that, that tree that's bad. Is that is that the implication? Or, yeah, or exactly. Because right now it's... The granularity of our data in terms of tracking food at every stage is not granular enough. And so that's why, you know, when you when you have contamination, you have to get rid of the entire batch. Whereas when we're tokenizing individual items, we can actually trace, okay, this is the one that is contaminated. This is the only one we need to get rid of. But more importantly, tracking it throughout the supply chain allows you to see where there are loopholes in terms of, um, let's say, you know, a package of mangoes was at the border for three days why was it at the border for three days because that has basically cut into the shelf life of those mangoes for three days right which is not optimal for the consumer it's not optimal for the retailer and so can we go back and identify okay why was there um three days there that wasn't supposed to be it's only supposed to take one day right so things like that helps in the longer process of extended shelf life of our produce and reducing food waste in general um but i think digitizing in general helps you i think in in a digitized food waste world, we'll see supermarkets that have much more granular data in terms of our consumer choices. Meaning, okay, I'll when I buy avocados, I can see, okay, there's a section where these are avocados you should eat today. These are avocados you should eat in three days. This is an avocado oh, you should eat in a week. I actually saw this. Uh, I don't remember which country it was, but there was a supermarket which had two avocados that you can eat now mm-hmm. and then two which will ripen in three or four days yeah. in the same packet. Perfect. Makes complete sense. Right, but we don't, Oh, we, not everyone does that now. Not most supermarkets don't do that. They put it all in the same pile and you figure out which are ripe and which are not. And leaving it to consumer is not always, I mean, you get those avocados that are all being pressed and can't be sold anymore, right? And there are signs, huge signs that says, don't, do not press the avocados. Um, and so, yeah, I think imaging, I talk about the role of, you know, hyperspectral imaging and doing that and being able to identify the ripeness of fruit, um, that enables us to basically segment it into different areas when we're buying it. So what will happen in 2050? <laughs> this this deadline that you've yeah. kind of set. It's really hard to, I mean, if we just go through the, I mean, the four parts, there's just so many parts of food system, but I think farms 
will be much more digitized and automated. I think that's already happening and farmers are starting to see, okay, like if we leave all these menial tasks to robots or drones, then we can pursue higher value opportunities or you know, we don't need to spend time on these menial tasks and we can really optimize our farms. And secondly, I think a lot of dense cities that have a scarcity of land and resources will look at alternative forms of farming beyond um, soil agriculture. So things like we talked about indoor farm tech, um, which are much more productive as well, because when you grow things in vertically stacked layers in vertical farming, you're, you know, upping your productivity up to 50 to 100 times which you know like for instance farm one and emirates already have a partnership to do that um where they're producing a hundred times much more food than they would be able to otherwise now does this mean that some very rich person earns a hundred times more or does it mean that food's going to become a hundred times cheaper for the consumer yeah that's something that has been very widely debated whether you know indoor farm tag is for elites or it can actually serve you know food deserts and malnutritioned areas i think that's something that still needs to be we still need to wait and see because i think there are really good players that are genuinely using indoor farm tech as a way to feed these food deserts and you know bring produce closer to con- to consumers but just because of the capital required for these indoor farms right now a lot of companies are only targeting gourmet produce right and selling to gourmet chefs who serve at michelin starred restaurants and so in that sense it seems now that it is more towards the elites but i think this whole movement of, you know, food inequality and food justice and people advocating for it in the US at least is going to bring about much more changes in direction to how indoor farm tech is being promoted um, and applied. What, what are the main purchasing decisions which you're making, which you think are only possible because of what you know about the food ecosystem? Well, firstly, buying as locally as I can. And I'm very privileged that where I live, I am able to do that. Um, And buying meat, as we talked about, that is humanely raised and grass-fed or pasture-raised that, you know, also improves the flavor of it and the quality of it in general. Like grass-fed beef just is a huge difference compared to corn-fed. One thing recently that I've been more persuaded on than uh, almost anything relating to food in the last six months is the difference in taste of uh, quality chicken versus... Mm -hmm. um, battery farm yeah. chickens my goodness i mean it, it, such it, a difference when, when you just take time to think about it even st- like the um the brittleness of the bones you just notice mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, the, the knife just goes through harder with a um a, a better raised chicken because it's stronger isn't it um and yeah the the the, the taste is um it, it tastes more chickeny what a dumb thing to say, <laughs> but it does it does yeah i mean same with beef like yeah. when you taste grass-fed beef versus corn-fed beef it's a world of difference um i'm very much looking forward to the day i get to buy cell-based meat yeah <laughs> which is supposed to be i mean i think it will be exactly the same or not exactly but very similar to rail meat because it is rail meat right yeah but it's just getting the technology there to scale up and get the right right ratio of you know fat to muscle to tendons and yeah I think it's and it's also a very certain exciting degree of place. unpredictability too I I think what, what one of the um, important things about these cell based steaks for example is mm. they're not perfectly uniform no you know, the, the, the part of the the joy of cooking or part of the skill of a chef is is kind of dealing with non uniformity mm. in a cup mm-hmm. um, and I think personally that's something that the like the likes of the Impossible Burger kind of 
gets wrong i could talk about this for ages but you know i know we could talk about this topic they, they talk about like, like, like the the juices oozing out of the meat and that's what mm. uh, that, that's uh, I, I, i'm gonna i'm gonna stop coconut myself. oil and yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's, like, that's not, it's not really what you're looking for right? that's a byproduct of what you're looking for right um, is this what you like to cook meat what, what, what? i do actually i i make a good beef ragu. Oh, nice. <laughs> I love, like, a red wine, like, you know, beef ragu with tagliatelle. Nice. Um, I do love doing that. Um, but at home, when, yeah, when I'm in the U.S., I don't have meat in my house. Yeah. Just because for very personal kind of... no. When you know the environmental and also human health impacts of meat, it's really hard to eat a lot of it for, yeah, a, for in your everyday life. Yeah. And what, what about baking? Oh, I love baking. My f- my love with for cooking and food started with baking. Like I used to, my first kind of business was selling cupcakes at a local sundry store in Country Heights. Really? In Malaysia, yeah. <laughs> so, and I did a gingerbread man business where I would sell it during Christmas to clients in Malaysia, but also at the store. So, really? Yeah. So baking was really my first love. And do you still bake now? Yeah, I love baking now. And... I imagine we we must be getting close to signature dish. Is your signature dish something uh, meat or plant based? Or don't tell me it's something to do with that fish poo. No, <laughs> it's it's not plant based because it has butter. But okay. butter is great. But yeah, so that's actually that is one of the other things that I do still eat, which is butter, because I can't give up the signature dish. Yeah, which is which is um, my salted caramel apple galette. Okay. So think of extremely buttery, flaky pastry made from just butter. I don't use shortening. You make your own pastry? Oh, yeah, of course. It makes a difference. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I don't, even, I don't even have a set recipe anymore. I just, I just know the ratio in my head. That's okay. how many times I've made this. Right. So can you, can you get out of your head and into this microphone? Oh, gosh. Um, really, I... Okay, there's this term in Malay called aga-aga. I don't know if you know, which is just like roughly. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know this word. Okay, it means roughly, but yeah. I would say, oh gosh, this is so hard to quantify because I just put in the butter and I see like, okay, this looks like the right ratio to okay. me, you know? So, so it's butter with... So I start with flour and I refrigerate it. Re- you refrigerate the flour? Yes. Okay. And I salt it a bit, obviously, and... I would say about one and a half to two cups, depending on how big of a pie or galette I'm making, right? And then I'll put in um, two sticks of butter. So that's like one cup, one to to one and a half cups. I really, I don't measure. Like that's that's just the thing, you know? Butter and flour until you get a pastry. Yes, you crumble with your fans and like, it has to be cold, very cold, right? And then you, I add cold water and it becomes pastry. Um, and then I chill it. And then, so what I do with the apples, I think, is a little bit different that I've kind of changed and refined over time where I cook the apples beforehand instead of just like tossing them in sugar and butter and or whatever and syrup. And so I cook it because I like to evaporate the liquid out of it so that I don't get a soggy pie or a soggy galette. Like I hate a soggy pie or whatever it is. And so I cook it and then I leave it out to evaporate basically and get dry um but i cook it just so that the apples are still a little bit crisp like i only cook the outside and yeah i just layer it in onto the pastry 
And then I started doing a galette because I was trying to use up all the bits and pieces and ends from doing a traditional closed roof pie. And so I started making like little apple pastries and then it became like a larger galette. And I started starting seeing other people do a galette. So then I thought, okay, this is a really good way for me to use up all my pastry and not have leftovers. And what about the caramel? Oh my gosh. So I use, I make this coconut salted caramel. So I use coconut milk instead of cream. And it just gives it this nice um, coconutty flavor that I think goes really well with the caramel. And so I make that too from scratch and I salt it, which is great. And what, what do you, there's, a, there's a precise temperature you need to get to, right, in order to create Is it like 118 degrees, something like that? Yes. Or do you eyeball this as well? Yeah, I eyeball okay. it too. <laughs> I'm a very home cook, home cook. Like yeah. I, I'm like a Jamie Oliver sort of cook. I, I love Jamie Oliver. Yeah. So I'm not like a Gordon Ramsay, like it has to be 118 degrees. Um, that's not me. But generally, you know, once the edges start browning and you see like, okay, it's going to quickly burn, then you start adding the butter and then the coconut milk so yeah I don't have a I have a thermometer at home but I don't use it that much um so yeah and then I layer I put one layer of apples and I put the salted caramel and then I put another layer of apples if I want to do something really fast but if I have a lot of time I'll make like a apple rose inside the galette oh, and then wow. yeah then how long is that baked for? Depends how big it is oh, yeah. so I've done all kinds of sizes I've done a whole big tray but with a galette it's way faster than doing a closed lid pie because it's open so that you don't have to cook the bottom of the pastry and then only add the filling and then cook the top. So I would say 40, 30 to 40 minutes is usually what I do for like a you know medium-sized galette because um, I like it super caramelized on the sides and like browned, yeah. And how will the production of this galette change when you make it in, in 2050? Oh my gosh. I think I'll be using like cell-based butter. <laughs> so butter from cell-based milk. Okay. I think that is, you know, I don't think, I actually haven't tried a lot of plant-based butters, but I think it will be cell-based butter. Um, and the apples will hopefully come from a farm, maybe indoor farm. Yeah. Maybe we'll figure out by then how to grow apples indoors. And the flour? The flour, probably still on on normal land because it's really hard to grow wheat indoors. Um, but yeah, I mean, buying the best, I guess, wheat, uh, the best flour from stone ground wheat and may- hopefully just much more sustainable practices in terms of how we're growing the wheat and, you know, in terms of its production and making it sustainable and optimizing the wheat and, and minimizing inputs. I really enjoyed that discussion and I'm very interested to see what Shen Ming does next. She's obviously got another dozen books inside of her just waiting to come out. And of course, what's interesting about this industry is it's so fast moving that some of these technological predictions are going to happen in our lifetime. Uh, and so I'm interested to hear from you. Which ones, which of these predictions do you think are going to come true? Email me at podcast at app. That's podcast at pona, P-O-N-A dot app. And if you'd like to buy the book, then I'm going to put a link to the book in the description of this episode and also a link to Shen Ming Li's social media accounts. This time next month too, there'll be another interesting discussion with a talented home cook. But until then, do take care. Mm-hmm.